If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Revelation 16, as we'll be looking tonight at verses 17 to 21 in Revelation 16, which say this, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. Now that's an interesting prepositional phrase, upon the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe." Now, I challenge anybody to find anywhere in history where that has happened. Those that say we are in the tribulation or we're in the millennium or whatever they say, which they invent in their own brains, I would say go to history and show us anywhere where that has happened because it is predicted to happen and it is going to happen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word and we thank you for your people who are out tonight to partake of it. We pray you bless our time tonight. And we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. This is actually called Advent Sunday. It was invented by the Catholic Church. It was picked up by some Protestant churches, Lutherans and Episcopalians. They all fell into this. It's a religious tradition that you start it four weeks before Christ. Probably it's designed just to kill time. The weeks that precede what they call the first coming of Jesus Christ are started when they call it Advent Sunday, and then it leads to four Sundays to December 25 day. And then later they added to the fact that it also is a preparation for the second coming of Christ. So Advent now represents the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Well, if you're preparing for the second coming of Jesus Christ, you're in the tribulation. And if you happen to be in that tribulation, you're not going to be singing, O little town of Bethlehem. When Jesus Christ returns to earth, the whole world's going to know it. And it's not going to be a quiet Bethlehem arrival. It will be a majestic display of the power and the authority of God because he's coming back to take over the world. And this final bold judgment is part of that. This final bold judgment is the final woe judgment of the great tribulation. It's going to be a cosmological destruction, the likes of which this world has never seen in its entire history. Now, John mentioned this morning that we had bad winter storm last week, and we did, but at least the storm let up. In fact, the snow's gone. Well, this storm of the tribulation is not going to let up. And once it starts, it's going to go from bad to worse to unlivable, and that is what is described in this text. Now, when we go down through this passage tonight, there are 12 observations we want to make. The first one is the seventh angel is going to pour out his wrath bowl upon the air. Verse 7 says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. I've seen a lot of things as I've gone through Revelation this time, and this is one of them. I want you to envision this now. You have the first bowl in which the angel, in verse 2, poured out his wrath on the earth. 
You have the second bowl judgment in which he poured out his judgment upon the sea. You have the third bowl judgment in which he poured out his judgment upon the fresh water. You have the fourth bowl judgment in which he poured out his judgment on the sun and he heated up everyone so they're burning here on earth. You have the fifth bowl judgment pronounced on the beast and all those connected to him and his kingdom. Then you had the sixth bowl judgment where he dries up the Euphrates. And now you come to this particular bowl judgment in which he uses an angel in a different way that he's used in the other angels. And he pours out some wrath bowl judgment upon the air. Now, the fact that he pours out this judgment upon the air is an indication this judgment's going to be hitting every place on the earth that has air. I would understand the language here, epiton era, that's how you read it in Greek. I would understand that to mean it'll be a major atmospheric plague that is going to hit the air, everyone in the world. I mean, just envision this at this point. Men are sitting in darkness, they're burning up, they're gnawing their tongues, and now God begins to shut down their air supply. During the Great Tribulation, God's going to target different areas for judgment. We know, for example, in chapter 6 and verse 8, one quarter of the world was targeted, but by virtue of the fact that this goes into the air, this is going to go everywhere else in the world. Now, a judgment on the air is going to cause some difficulty for breathing for everybody in the world. And I don't think most people are even aware of the fact of how dependent we are upon the Lord for the air that we breathe. And what God is going to do here is he's going to cause some type of air toxicity. And what he's going to do here is he's going to allow the air quality and health to deteriorate. And when you have air issues, you have a lot of issues. I mean, when you start polluting air or you start judging air, I mean, you cause asthma attacks, COPD, flare-ups, you have shortness of breath, people begin to wheeze, they cough, they have chest pains, they get fatigued, they get bronchitis, people are going to just be trying to breathe. And God says, that's the first part of this judgment, judgment on the air. The second observation we make is there's a loud voice coming from the temple that will announce it's done. Verse 17 says, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it's done. Now, as we've pointed out, all of these judgments are coming from the throne of God. All of these judgments are coming from an angry God. And this is the voice of God that's announcing it is done. Only God knows when wrath has reached the filled up level when he can actually make this announcement. But I would assume, based on the fact that he makes this announcement with a loud voice, it's a voice that will be heard on the earth. It'll be a mega voice. Now, there have been a couple of times in history where God has made mention of the fact that something's done. He did it when Jesus was on the cross. He said, it's finished. It's done. And he does it here when he finishes the tribulation. He says, it's done. He uses two different words. The word that is used here means it's all happened. It's all enacted. Everything that needs to be done is done. It will be a great cry coming out of the throne of God. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried, it was finished. And he was talking there not about the wrath being done, but the redemption being done. And that's why two different words are used. This is not about redemption here. This is about wrath. When the Savior cried out, it's finished, he was talking about the whole issue of being able to save sinners. When this cry comes out of the throne of God, it's talking about the judgment of God and pouring out wrath is done. It's finished. Now, the third observation is there will be flashes of lightning. We read that in verse 18. There were flashes of lightning. 
Most people, I don't think, realize that lightning flashes do come directly from God. It's God who controls the pattern of the lightning. He controls where it goes and where it hits. And usually, when we watch weather people on TV, they are attributing this to Mother Nature. But there's no such thing as Mother Nature. That's another one of the inventions of men that slaps God in the face. It's God who controls the weather. His word makes that very clear. This lightning and this thunder certainly does indicate the presence of God in judgment. It's the same kind of thing that he did when he displayed himself in his awesome presence on Mount Sinai. We read in Job, behold, he spreads his lightning about him. We read in Job, he covers his hands with lightning and commands it to strike its mark. We also read in Job, under the whole heaven, he lets loose and his lightning to the ends of the earth. In Psalm, we read, he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance. And in Psalm 148, we read, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word. So what God is going to do here at this point in the tribulation is put on a wrath lightning show, the likes of which this world has never seen before. And this particular display of lightning and everything else that goes along with it will be a sovereign display of a sovereign final judgment that displays the power and wrath of God. Now the fourth observation is there will be sounds. That's what verse 18 says. And sounds. The noun sounds is interesting. It's the noun phoni, which is voices. This word is used to refer to some type of speech or language. And what I take that to mean here is that as this lightning is flashing out of heaven and out of the throne of God, people are going to hear these voices, these sounds. There'll be loud sounds coming out of heaven. And the text doesn't tell us exactly what they're saying. But I can tell you this, as one commentator observed, this will be something that reveals the terrifying presence of God. We may assume that the sounds that they're hearing does have to do with the finale of the wrath of God. Now, just keep in your mind this. People are here. They're in the dark. They're burning up. They're gnawing their tongues. They're just trying to gasp breath because God is shutting off the oxygen supply. And they're going to hear these loud voices that are coming out of heaven. They'll hear the sounds. And the fifth observation is there will be thunders. Verse 18 says, and peals of thunder. Now, the phrase peals of thunder suggests that this is going to be a major roaring, roaring of thunder, the kind of which the world has never heard before. I'm not sure why the translators use the word peals because it's not in the Greek text. We may assume that it is based on the plural noun thunders, and that is plural noun in Greek. The word thunder is plural. It indicates there will be multiple thunderous roars that will occur. Hence, I think that's why the translators said peals of thunder. The English word peal refers to loud, reverberating, ringing sound. So what this thunder is going to do is it'll just roar. It'll just roar over the world. It's going to be very, very intense. And as these people are trying to gasp for air, because God has put a judgment on the air supply, and they're sitting here and they're burning up and they're gnawing their tongues, there's going to be this roaring thunder and this lightning flash show that will be coming right out of heaven. And thunder is often associated with God and wrath, and the themes of lightning and thunder are often that that reveals the sovereignty of God when he's angry and when he's judging. And don't ever forget that when you hear thunder roar and you see lightning flash. Don't ever forget that. It is coming from a sovereign God who has all power to do whatever he wants to do. 
Now the sixth observation is there will be the greatest earthquake in the history of the world since man has existed on earth. That's what verse 18 says. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. The most powerful earthquake that has ever been recorded in history to this point was an earthquake called the Great Chilean Earthquake that occurred in 1960. It lasted about 10 minutes and it registered 9.5 on the Richter scale. Now the Richter scale is a logarithm scale that measures seismic disturbances in terms of energy and wiggle movement. It actually measures the wiggle movement of an earthquake, and every number in the Richter scale from 1 to 10 indicates that the level of the earthquake or the level of the wiggles have gone 10 times more intense. So the higher you get from 1 toward 10, you're getting up toward a high scale of wiggle that is taking place with the earthquake. Now, the earthquake that occurred in the Chilean earthquake injured 3,000 people, and it's been estimated it killed between 1,000 and 6,000 people. And the top 10 registered earthquakes in the world to hit thus far are that one in Chile at 9.5, the Great Alaska Earthquake in 1964, 9.2, the Sumatra Earthquake in 2004, 9.1, the Tohoku Earthquake in 2001, 9.1, the Kamchatka Russian earthquake in 1952, 9.0. Another one in Chile in 2010, 8.8. The Ecuador-Colombia earthquake, which occurred in 1906, 8.8. Rat Island earthquake in 1965, 8.7. The Asman-Tibet earthquake in 1958, 8.6. And the Sumatra earthquake in 2012, 8.6. Last Tuesday... An earthquake of 7.0 hit the Solomon Islands and it caused power outages and destruction and death. That's what earthquakes do. Typically, earthquakes do four things. They destroy property, they terrify people, make people scared, they injure people, and they kill people. The earthquake that's here in Revelation is going to make all those other earthquakes we just went over look like nothing. It will be the most devastating earthquake in the history of the world. This will be an earthquake that's going to hit the world. And this earthquake is going to hit everyone in the world. So now you have, not only are people sitting there gnawing their tongues, burning up with some boil judgment that they've got, sitting in darkness, gasping for breath because God's shutting off their oxygen supply. They hear thunder and lightning, and now the earth begins to shake with this great earthquake. Which brings us to the seventh observation. The great city, Jerusalem, will be split into three parts. And the great city was split into three parts. The great city, if you go back to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8, we get the identification of what the great city is. It's pretty clear here. In Revelation eleven eight, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So the great city is the city where the Lord was crucified. It's none other than Jerusalem. And we learn from different Old Testament passages of Scripture that there are going to be things happening in Jerusalem. Just before the Lord Jesus Christ returns, there's going to be some real disruptions that will take place geographically. 
in which things are going to actually happen. I'd like you to go back, if you would, to Ezekiel 5, if you would, just for a moment. Ezekiel 5, I want to turn you to a couple of passages in Ezekiel. The first one is in Ezekiel 5. And we get a glimpse here that there's something here about a third that's going on. In Ezekiel chapter 5, there's a prediction made here as to what would would ultimately happen. In verse 1 of Ezekiel 5, we read, As for you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard, and take scales for weighing and divide the hair. One third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city. When the days of the siege are completed, then you shall take one-third and strike it in the sword all around the city, and one-third you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheathe a sword behind them. So we certainly get evidence here from Ezekiel that something is going to happen that's going to be involved in dividing this city up into thirds. Then if you flip over to Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel 38, we learn that there's going to be a tremendous earthquake that's going to hit this part. Of the world. In Ezekiel 38, verse 17, thus says the Lord God, Are you one of whom I spoke in former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against them? It will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord, that my fury will mount up in my anger, in my zeal, and in my blazing wrath. I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. So this thing about this city being hit with an earthquake and something dividing it into thirds is something that's seen right in the Old Testament. And we also learn from that Ezekiel text that that earthquake is going to be a sign of God's fury and wrath against nations coming against Israel. Then we read in Zechariah 14.4, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountains will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. So our conclusion is that Jerusalem is split into three parts for three reasons. First of all, it shows that God is angry with the sins that have been committed by his people right there in that city. That city is the city that crucified his son. When he splits this city at this point, as he gets near the end of the tribulation period, he's basically showing, I'm fed up with what the people did in that city of Jerusalem. Secondly, it shows that God is angry with the nations who've arrogantly gone to war against Israel. And thirdly, it will display his son is coming back to the Mount of Olives to take over the world. So at this point in the tribulation, there will be some major topographical things that will take place. There will be this splitting of Jerusalem. The city will be physically changed. Undoubtedly, this earthquake is going to be critical to this occurring. And what happens to Jerusalem is nothing compared to what God's going to do to the rest of the cities of the world. Which brings us to the eighth observation, the cities of the nations are going to fall. He says in verse 19, and the cities of the nations fell. Now in the original text, the noun cities and nations are plural. So we would understand this to mean the great cities of the nations are coming down in this one worldwide earthquake. It's a staggering thing to consider. There's an article, the, before noun cities, another article, the, before noun nations, So we could say this is a reference to specific major cities and specific nations. All major cities of the world are coming down at this point. Now that's never happened. 
And I want you to think of the great cities of all the nations of the world, Paris, Hong Kong, Tokyo, London, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Chicago, Seattle, Detroit. Then there's Miami, there's Istanbul, there's Sydney, and there's, of course, Alamo and Martin of the great cities of the world. You didn't get that, Alamo and Martin. <laughs> but then there's New York. You know, people in New York, they're proud of that city. It's called the Big Apple. They call it the city that never sleeps. They call it the capital of the world. And people will tell you, we like the fast pace. We like the hustle and bustle. This is the city that has 24-hour life. In fact, they brag about the fact we build it bigger. We build it better. We have celebrities who live here. We have world-class arts. We have world-class entertainment. Ten million people here. We have a lot of culture. But boy, they have a lot of sin. And what God says here is, I'm bringing that city down. And at this point in the tribulation, that city is coming right down just like all the rest of the cities of the world. He'll drop it. Which brings us to the ninth observation. God will remember Babylon and to pour out his fierce wrath. He says in verse 19, And Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of his fierce wrath. Now when you read those words, fierce wrath, that he's giving to Babylon, those can't be good. I mean, we don't even know really what that actually means. It just indicates that something he has reserved for that Babylon area is at a new level of wrath. And the wrath that we've already seen has not been fluffy stuff. But when he uses the term, this will be the fierce wrath of God, it's in a whole new league. Babylon is remembered by God, but not with fond memories. And God says, I'm remembering that. I haven't forgotten what you've done. I've kept the records of what you've done. And the specific details of this wrath against Babylon are going to be given in the next two chapters in the book of Revelation. But what is stated here is that God remembers this city, he's targeting this city, and they will receive the full brunt of the fierce wrath of God. And when you take into consideration the fact that God has kept the record against Babylon for centuries, what we learn here is he doesn't forget stuff, and he doesn't overlook stuff. Wiser people who make very wise biblical decisions in life, and wiser people who face their sin and deal with their sin before they get before the Lord, because he'll not forget it. I guarantee you he doesn't forget it. Which brings us to the tenth observation, every island will flee away, verse 20, and every island fled away. You know, there are nearly 900,000 islands in the world, in the USA, there are over 18,000 islands. In the state of Michigan, there are 503 islands that have official names. Some of the names I'm sure you're familiar with in islands, you have Beaver Island and Manitou Island and Belle Isle and Mackinac and Drummond Island. I mean, those are some of the big names. The difference between what happens here in this judgment and what happened in seal judgment number 6 and Revelation 6 is that in that judgment, the islands and mountains were relocated. It appears here that in this judgment, they're annihilated. The image of all islands fleeing is intriguing because the Greek verb flee usually means they take flight, they just take off. And the point of the language is that these islands are kind of, God's using them like a motorboat. I mean, people are going to, in the tribulation, say, if we can just make it to that island, if we can just get there, we can escape all of this. But those islands, people won't be able to catch them. They won't be able to get on them. They won't be able to catch up with them. And not only that, but every mountain will be gone. 
In verse 20, the text says, and the mountains were not found. What is going to happen here is the landscape, as one commentator said, is going to be totally ravaged. Think about this. The mountain range is gone. The Himalayas, the Andes, the Rockies, the Alps, the Appalachians. The text says these mountains were not found. So obviously people are thinking if we can just get to the mountains, if we can just get to those mountains areas, we can escape this. But your cities are gone. Your mountains are gone. You won't even be able to recognize this earth anymore. Because God says, I am pouring out my wrath on it. And there's never been a time when he's done this. And then if that's not enough, the 11th observation is huge hailstones, each weighing 100 pounds, will fall on men. We read in verse 21, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. These hailstones are coming directly out of heaven, and their target is men. I want you to go to the book of Job, chapter 38, for just a second. I want to show you two verses from Job 38. I want to show you something that God says about hail in Job chapter 38. And verse 22, this is the text in Job 38 where God is questioning Job, just basically saying, you don't know what I'm even doing. You don't even have the knowledge of what I'm doing. He says to Job in Job 38, 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I've reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? God says, I have hail in storage. I have hail in storage, and what is described here is hail that weighs 100 pounds coming out of heaven and hitting humans and everything else that gets in its way. I mean, I don't care what it's going to hit. It's going to splatter it. If it's animals, if it's a human, if it's a house, if it's any type of transportation, vehicle, any type of structure, it's going to splatter it. God is going to fire 100-pound hailstones at humans on earth. There'll be no game of dodgeball played here. You know, I read an article written by someone, how to prepare for hail. I thought, well, I'd like to see how you're going to prepare to dodge 100-pound hailstones that are being thrown by God straight out of heaven, aimed at humanity on earth. You're not going to be able to come up to a plan to avoid that. The largest hailstorm in history occurred in Bangladesh in 1986, and there a hailstone weighed 2.2. Two five pounds, and 92 people were killed by that. That's just a two-pound hailstone. We're talking here about a 100-pound hailstone. Now, when a man free falls as a skydiver, he can reach speeds of 200 miles an hour, and that is in an atmosphere that has wind and air resistance. What God's going to do is sling these 100-pound hailstones out of heaven, and whatever it hits, it's going to hit with such velocity that it'll crush and completely destroy everything. Which brings us to the final observation. Men will blaspheme God because of this. Notice verse 21 says, Men blaspheme God because of the plague of hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Dr. S. Lewis Johnson many years ago made a real interesting observation about this point. You can only blaspheme things when you know truth. You can only blaspheme God when you know truth about God. You can't blaspheme God when you don't know truth about God. So what you actually have here is you actually have people in the world, they know specifically by this point, this is coming directly from God, and what you have here, as one writer said, is unrepentant depravity. And rather than these men saying, we were wrong, 
Rather than them turning to the Lord and crying out for his mercy, they blaspheme God. They know it's coming from God. It's his weather. That lightning show, that thunder show, those hailstones that are flying through the air, the oxygen supply that's being cut off, the boils that have hit them, the sun that's baking them, the darkness that they're under, they know it's coming from God. But stupid man has been trying to get people to believe they control stuff like this. They don't control any of it. They don't control the air. They don't control the weather. They don't control thunder and lightning. They don't control earthquakes. They don't control hurricanes or tornadoes. They don't control hail. God does. And at this point in the tribulation period, they're going to admit this has all come from God, and they'll blaspheme him. See, man has fallen in love with this world. And man has fallen in love with those cities. And God says, I'm just bringing it all down. It's not yours, it's mine. And I'm bringing it all down. We have a prayer list that we pray for every Wednesday. We get some people together and we pray here. And we have a section in that prayer list that is a prayer list for family and friends. And many of the family and friends that get into that list, we are asked to pray for, have cancer. Now, sometimes in that family and friends list, we have people that have cancer, and some of it is very serious, and they'll say, please pray for the cancer, and please pray for salvation. You would think, if anything would prompt somebody to want to come to faith in Jesus Christ, if anything would prompt someone to want to be saved from their sin, it would be a cancer they have that could kill them. You would think that it wouldn't even be a question. A person who has cancer that can kill them, they'd be saying, I need to get right with God. I need to have Jesus Christ in my life. But as Spurgeon said, sickness and sorrow themselves are no help to salvation. Pain and poverty are not evangelists. Disease and despair are not apostles. Look at the lost in hell. A passage like this screams to people and says, don't go there. We don't need 100-pound hailstones flinging out of the sky to show us we're sinners. And we don't need all of this destruction of an earthquake to show us we need a Savior. So don't go there. Believe in the Lord and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we pray you take your word and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.